Coming up next, the booketing reads Remains of the Day. Booking. My name is David Robertson. I'm your humble and obedient host. I am joined, as always, by my two compatriots, my compadres, my good friends, my fellow bookiners. We've got the Brandon Chasdeen. Hey. Oh, dear, what can I do? Brandon's in black and I'm wearing blue. Tell me, oh, what can I do? It's a little Beatles for you and a little truth in that Brandon is wearing black. Who died, Brandon? I don't know. I wish I had something witty to say. <laughs> Brennan, haven't you been working on your banter? No. Have you been saying three witticisms sometimes when you find yourself in the room <laughs> dusting or something and you like, say some witticisms? No, I've failed. Oh. Yeah. Well, you're not going to get better at banter like that, my bucko. Yeah. Pal. Pal. <laughs> not a big fan of the fact that I just said bucko. <laughs> really, really don't care for that at all. Not happy with it. But, you know... That's how it goes. I, I'm happy to uh, be at the booking. We just got done with our big uh, Ready Player One episode, uh, Z episodes. Yeah, that's right. We did. Man, that movie sure was something fantastic. And we haven't seen the movie yet. Really folks. horrible. Yeah. I'm giving two options here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we, can, we just choose the one. Yeah. <laughs> just plug I it like, in. I like your options. Fantastic. Really horrible. <laughs> So disappointing. <laughs> so disappointing, Brandon. The great. I loved it anyway. <laughs> I don't care what you say or how, how it actually ended up. You know, I think I'm excited enough about it, actually, at this point, that even if it sucks, I'll probably like it the first time, and, and then it'll take a little while for it to come for me to realize that it actually did suck. I don't know. That's yeah. kind of how I'm feeling. But uh, I'm just excited, and I'm letting myself get Ooh. excited. I don't know when the last Ooh. time I've... It's <laughs> Jake's excited noise. <laughs> Sorry. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. It's possible that I'm watching basketball on my computer. And who's the man that's watching basketball? Why? Only the pastor who's a master of watching basketball on his computer right there. Jacob Menzel, how you doing, Jake? I'm doing fine. What kind of time we got on this game? We got enough time to do some donor shout-outs? We got about two minutes to play in a really tight game, which could mean it could drag on for a long time, depending on how it gets down. Yeah, there's two minutes left, like two minutes ago. Yeah. This is day one of March Madness. We're (laughs) recording this episode. When does March Madness? It happens in March, eh? It happens in March. This is day one. This is when it happens. The Ides, in fact, of March? Oh, that's right. This is is the Ides of March. Which of us is going to get stabbed before the end of this episode? Spoiler alert, it's Brandon. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry. <laughs> At no. two, Nathan. <laughs> nah, I wouldn't stab you unless I had a good reason to. I was wrong. We were at commercial. Oh, we're, we're at a minute. Oh, good. Know, so, well, that's yeah. enough time to do donor shoutouts, eh? Yeah, absolutely. Do 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 donor shoutouts. Basketball themed. Do 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 do. Andrew and Esther, the lovebirds. Andrew, 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 and Esther, <laughs> Esther, 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 the love, love, love. love. Birds, yeah! <laughs> birds, birds, birds! <laughs> Jake, can you simultaneously watch basketball? Give us a shout-out for the inscrutable Jenny Z. The inscrutable Jenny Z. Z, 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 Z. And Robert and Rhonda, the lovebirds! Robert and Rhonda, <laughs> the lovebirds! Birds! 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 
And we've got John and Jill and Little Baby Max. John and Jill and Little Baby Max. Mm. Max. Mm. He's getting cute. He's getting cute. He's uh, He can actually like hold uh, his neck up. How old is he? He, I don't know, maybe six months. Okay, yeah. Like, he can actually... Between three to six months, that's the first stage of cuteness, and then... Well, we're in the actual stage of cuteness. is about 18 months. We don't have any teeth yet, so that's a problem, cuteness-wise, but he actually can get through an entire visit without crying the whole time, which is a big component of cuteness as far as I'm concerned. Like, he actually knows who I am, he responds, he smiles. Smiling is a key. If someone wants to be cute, if you're a baby and you're listening and you want to be cute, just smile. It goes a long way, all right? It's the one thing you can wear that will improve your appearance. Like, is it a hat? Is it a scarf? No, it's a smile. I read a short story in Sunday school one time where someone gave a kid something to wear that made them really attractive. It was a smile, Brandon. Oh, boy. It was a smile. Yeah. You just wear a smile. My beloved mother, Beth. Nathan's beloved mother, Beth. Beth, 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 Beth. Come on down. Come on down. The price is right. Jane Katie, you were cold and love cheese. Standing at a combined height of 12 feet tall from Madison, Wisconsin, Jay and Katie love cheese. And are cold. And that's an interesting fact about Jay and Katie. Brandon, did you know that they stand at a combined height of 12 feet tall? I did not know that. It's actually that's probably an over, overestimate. There. I think Jay, is, go Jay so is 10 feet, say. Katie, I think about two. <laughs> wow. <laughs> um, <laughs> Benny T and his beloved wife, Dana. Benny T and his beloved wife, Dana. Dana! Dana. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Nathan, not me. Nathan, not Nathan! Whoa, whoa. Jake should be an announcer for something. Yeah. Uh, Eric and Catherine, the lovebirds. Call them out, Brandon. Eric and Catherine, the lovebirds! Birds, birds. Dun, 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 Nope. I always mess it up. No, that's right. Dr. X. No, that's wrong. It's Professor. What is it? It's Professor. Go ahead. Professor X. X, 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 X. Charge. Charge. Hey, those were some nice donor shout outs. If you want to be donor shout outed, well, what you got to do is you got to go to patreon.com forward slash the booking. You can be donor shout outed. It's very easy to do. You just give us money. That's all you have to do, Brandon, is give us some money. Wow. Yeah. Just some money. Hey. It's been a little while. The way we recorded this, at all, people don't know our recording schedule could be really wacky. It does not necessarily represent what you end up getting in the final order of recording. Sometimes we record things out of order. Sometimes we do two at a time. Sometimes different things happen. Whatever. Sometimes a movie comes out that we have to see like Wrinkle in Time. And that's exactly what happened. As Wrinkle in Time came out, we went and saw it. meant we had a week in between this episode and our last episode on Remains of the Day, which meant I've had a couple weeks to not have Remains in the Day in my brain. So what I've done is I pulled up a quiz on gradesaver.com. Quiz number one is what this is called. The Rings of the Day quiz one. We are going to do this quiz together. It's going to help us orient (laughs) ourselves. And we're going to see how well we do. Can we get, you think of the booking? Man, I mean, for context sake, I have, since we last recorded Remains of the Day, I've finished The Bruised Read by Richard Sibbs, Charlotte's Web. I'm nearly done with The Odyssey. I've started The Church of Christ by James Bannerman. I am halfway through 12 Rules for Life by Jordan Peterson. And reading another book called Essentialism or something like some business dumb book that somebody gave me. Oh, we'll do just fine. Hey, say what you told me the other day. That was interesting. What did I tell you the other day? About why you don't like epistolary stuff. Oh, well, did we do baggage check? Have we done baggage check before? I sure hope so. (laughs) 
<laughs> I, I think we did. Yeah, we did, because I talked about how I had that teacher that was great. What what I was saying to you the other day is that I really don't like um, anything that's in the form of a, a diary or a journal. Letters it, are different. Letters are different, yes. The journal diary thing just strikes me as really cheap, easy way <laughs> to be psychoanalytical, and it ends up just sounding really narcissistic and stupid. Well, for one, anybody who actually keeps a diary is usually keeping their diary because they... Because they're narcissistic and stupid. Yeah, and they have this romantic ideal that one... Somebody's going to read it or it's going to get yeah. published and their deep insights into their own nature and into human nature or the world right. or whatever are going to illuminate mankind. Take that, Anne Frank. And so... David Brainerd. And so Wait. then <laughs> when you have somebody who decides they're going to write a novel in that style, what it signals to me is what I have something to say that I think is psychoanalytical and insightful and I'm just a narcissist and I'm going to impress you with my, my the psychoanalysis of this character I've created and it I just really turns me off. I always hate that. Like sort Notes of from the Underground. I've not read it, but yes, like it is Notes from the Underground. I know it is. I think when done, poor, when done poorly, it's poorer than just a generic third-person novel. When done well, for example, Remains of the Day, it can be quite rewarding. I mean, there aren't yeah, that many so examples of it, what, right? Yeah, the, I don't even know that I can draw up a lot of examples. Just as a conceit, I really hate the idea of it because for that reason. Now, Remains of the Day... Uh, has a turn, and the turn is when he, I mean, for me, it, th- there was a turning point, and that's when he got more sort of just uh, telling his stories and anecdotes from his past. It's interesting what Ishiguro does in the sense that he develops a story, and I'm trying to think of some examples. I think the most famous example is Sorrows of Young Werther, but he's that's still epistolary. The difference between the epistolary and the diary would be mm. epistolary is meant to be written to someone else, so there's already an audience that is... Right. Uh, you get examples of both in Dracula. Yes, and Dracula uses both forms very cheaply. So elegantly. (laughs) You know, so elegant. Yeah. So typically, with the epistolary novel, you want to have this first person, but they're talking to someone else, and there's something essential to that relationship that's going to develop throughout the novel. Mm -hmm. That's what Marilyn Robinson tried to do with Gilead. Oh, yeah. Well, there's an example of a novel that I did not have a lot of respect for, where it felt like she did have a lot of insights into Calvinism and whatever else, and she just wanted to pack them in there, and so she came up with a form that would suit them. Yeah. But the diary form novel, I mean, that's it's not that... I'm trying to think of some other... Oh, Frankenstein, right? (laughs) You're going to make me edit that out. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) You're going to make you edit what out. He's whispering things about basketball. (laughs) No, keep it in. Keep it in. It's funny. (laughs) Brandon's over here just oblivious. Jake's over there listening to basketball. Not listening, watching. Watching, watching. (laughs) You hear me groan. This is probably... Randomly. People are really seeing the bookening right here. (laughs) That's why I'm going to have to cut it out here. Just over here talking, thinking everybody's listening. (laughs) You want to know some famous uh, diary novels? You've got Bridget Jones' Diary. Yeah, that can go die. (laughs) (laughs) There's a little banner for you. Uh, The Color Purple. I've not read it. Me neither. Me neither. Done by our good friend Stevie S, who's doing, what is that novel? Return of the Player or whatever. Ready Uh, Player Remains of the Day. Remains of the Player. (laughs) Remains of the Player. Journal of the Plague Year by Daniel Defoe. Some Mm. stuff by J.M. Barry. Am I wrong about Frankenstein? See here. Is it more letter form? Well, letters are, I mean, letters, so that, all that to say, letters would be different and it's hard. So I don't know how many famous novels are actually the diary form. 
I can't think but, of many thing many off the top of my um, head. But the narcissistic navel gazing, yeah, I could see it would be a necessary part of it. I like narcissistic navel nasal gazing gazing when the author actually like with Stevens, there's a perspective. You're supposed to stand outside of him. You're supposed to judge him. You're not just yeah. you're not just supposed to be sucked into his navel gazing and love his navel gazing. No, yeah. And with Ishiguro, what he seems to do with most of his not well, not what he seems to do, what he's doing with most of his novels is he's taking this character and he's having you look at their attempt to self-justify their past to themselves, mm-hmm. and then how you actually get glimpses of who they really are through that. Yeah. And then also yeah. you see cracks where they have some self-awareness themselves, even though they never will admit it. Right. And so it's really interesting watching Ishiguro do that, because it's really, I, I don't quite know how he manages to do it, but he does it really well. I kind of, as people know, I kind of got into an obsessive kick mm-hmm. with Ishiguro, and now since they know that we have a gap between this and our last recording, I actually read two more novels by him. <laughs> right. Whoa. And they do the same thing. Both of them are about these authors who are first-person pers- first perspective. They're attempting to tell you about their past, attempting to justify themselves to themselves. And in the process, you actually see some form of truth. Right. Which I like this about Ishiguro because I think he actually believes some sort of truth. He's not postmodern in the sense that we really... Most people think of postmodernism as a complete denial of truth and reality. I don't think Ishiguro is that way. I think he does think there's a reality. Obviously, it's not the Christian reality. Right. He himself says he's not a Christian, so... Well, it seems to me that he rightly chose this form for Remains of the Day because he didn't want Stevens to have complete self-knowledge. Like, he's Stevens has a little bit of self-knowledge at the end that he didn't necessarily want him to have at the beginning. Mm-hmm. So it's helpful that we're actually tracking with Stevens as he gains a little bit more understanding or whatever you want to call it. And then it. we also have to have the lid closed back on Stevens too. Right. He can't completely be redeemed. Right. Mm-hmm. And so the end, it's really, it's a depressing ending. Yeah, I wasn't trying to say that he was redeemed. What I'm simply saying is Oh, I know. I'm just I'm just. If Stevens sits down at the end of his life and writes <laughs> the whole story of his journey, it's a different novel than if he writes it piecemeal as he goes on his yes. journey. We yeah, get to see the heartbreaking right. result of this man and he says heartbreaking himself sitting down trying to make sense of his life what he's lost what he's not had the manly i'm not gonna say that courage (laughs) phil he didn't go after miss kenton even though she wanted him to and he knows at the end that it's gone it's lost to him he has this kind of moment of revelation that he's heartbroken but then immediately he goes back to just thinking about banter yeah and talk about a a nice little analog metaphor at the end with the lights turning off on Mm -hmm. the dock as he's sitting there Yep, it's a beautiful image yeah, but pretty... And I, I understand. I've not seen the movie. I understand they do not, in fact, use that. No, that's a... It's we'll be doing the movie next week, folks. <laughs> that's a great... I mean, that one sticks with you. He's sitting there and he's talking to this guy. And as he's having this, he's just had the revelation, I think, right? Mm-hmm. Or he's, and he's kind of still mm-hmm. reeling from it. And the lights are going out on the dock as he's talking. Right. As he's just waiting. Everybody's just waiting yeah. to get on whatever transportation they're going to be taking. Yeah. And then he goes back and he starts thinking about banter again. And that's how the novel ends is with him just going back to himself. He never, the revelation doesn't have a strong enough hold to actually do any change. Yeah. It's really sad. It's really sad. I've decided that we're actually going to do at some point when we have to fill an episode, we're going to do a top 10 ending scenes. Or like a top, I don't know. We'll just. We'll You're just never gonna remember that. Yeah, well, it's on recording. I'll hear it in the episode. Yeah, eight months will pass from we'll the last something time you else. listen to. We'll it. Like do our top ten sonnets or something. <laughs> <laughs> you make a fair point. But now you've thrown down the gauntlet, so maybe I'll like remind us, booking. That's down. my goal, bookiners. Being subversive here. Oh, Nathan, I have so much faith in you. You'll remember it. Now, see, you're canceling out <laughs> Jake's subversion. You're making me too comfortable. <laughs> Isn't that a good idea, though? Like Dracula, terrible. She's just like, I've got a baby, and it has the names of everyone that 
stabbed Dracula. Yeah, it's a bad ending. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> East of Eden, pretty great ending. <laughs> Those would be Tim Schull. Uh, Anna Karenina, not a particularly memorable ending because no. I can't remember it. Yeah, I was thinking. But was... are we doing the best endings of what we've read? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, maybe, I mean, what, maybe, or maybe I don't some, know. Actually, could, this would be a chance for some of those books that we haven't loved to shine. Huck like, Finn, worst ending ever. Yeah. Oh, yeah, horrible ending, but For Whom the Bell Tolls. For Whom the Bell Tolls, exactly. For Whom the Bell Tolls. Pretty great ending. Well, Jake, I, I, I would want to put Milhauser in the <laughs> ring, too. How does, it, how does it end again, Brandon? <laughs> he touches <laughs> a tree or something. Yeah, he touches a tree. He may or may not on his fingers. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, Milhauser, not one of the best novels we've read, but I think one of the best endings. a pretty good ending, yeah. Where he goes outside the hotel and he sees the blue sky and everything. It's pretty powerful. Yeah. Little last image there. We're doing this episode right now. (laughs) (laughs) No, we shouldn't. We got to do remains of the day. So let's do this quiz, eh? Yeah. Um, All right, guys. Um, See what we can remember. What is Miss Kenton's married name? I have no clue. I've got... but. Uh, what you would call Multiple it. choice. Multiple choice, but I'll only give them if we need them. Is it Miss Taylor, Miss Darlington, Miss Faraday, or Miss Ben? What was the last one? Ben, B-E-N-N, and I think that's correct. Miss Ben. When Stevens begins his journey to Miss Kenton, what is his reason for visiting her? More order. He needs to hire her. There's a missing piece of the puzzle. Lack of order. I'll give you the choice. A house plan. To give her a ring she lost. Uh-huh. False. To marry her. False. Uh-huh. To bring her back to the staff of Darlington Hall. No. True. To report his father's death. Yes. False. I'm going to go with to bring her staff back to the staff of Darling Hall. When was Remains of the Day published? Can you do it, Brandon? 1987. No. Eight. Nine. Yes. Good job. Well... At least our other options are all in the 90s, and I think it was the 80s. It's 89, yeah. Stevens has what position at Darlington Hall? Head footman, head chef, head maid, or head butler? Head, head maid. Yeah, okay, yeah I'm clearly gonna, head maid. I'm going to choose head butler here, because I want to see if we can actually get 100%. Oh. What is Stevens' father's name? Lef, George, or... Mr. Stevens, of course. Well, <laughs> our choices are Lef, George, Phil, or William? William. You really think so? I know so. Brennan, you agree? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Chaw. Chaw. Where does Stevens run into Mr. and Mrs. Taylor? Ooh. Taylor. Mascombe, Westcombe, Salisbury, or London? Maybe Salisbury. Maybe. You really yeah. think of them? No. Brandon? I'm guessing. Were they the ones whose house he stayed at? Musk. I don't know. I probably would guess Westcombe if I had to guess something. Oh, the Taylors are in Moscombe. Moscombe? Yeah, yeah, I think Moscombe's. The Treaty of Versailles punished what country for causing World War One? <laughs> <laughs> England. France. Do you guys remember this important <laughs> fact from the novel? I've got Italy, France, United Kingdom, or Germany. Lord Darlington. <laughs> yeah, it's Lord Darlington. Uh, when does Lord Darlington hold his convention to renegotiate the outcome of the Treaty of Versailles? 1923, 1925, <laughs> yes. 1918, or 1920? We might lose a point here. To renegotiate what? The, the Treaty, Treaty of Versailles. Hmm. Is it Versailles or Versailles? And the options were? 23, 25, 18, or 20. It's got to be 23 or 25, right? That would be, uh, my guess was going to be it would be the latest one. I was yeah. going to go with 25. Are we comfortable just going with 25? Sure. All right. Mm, I think it's 23. Uh, some listener is listening to this and screaming the right answer at us right now. Yeah. Who recognizes Stevens for being a butler on his trip to Miss Kenton? Mrs. Taylor, Mr. Taylor, Harry Moscombe, or Dr. Carlisle? Dr. Carlisle. That would be Dr. Carlisle, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. What is the word that Stevens uses used to describe great butlers? Uh, dignity. dignity. That's absolutely right. Dignity. D- yeah, that's how Stephen. I imagine Stephen's talking just like that. Dignity. What was the name of the society that is home to great butlers in the early 20th century? Hogwarts. <laughs> is it the Aristocats? Yeah. Hayes, uh-huh. Simmons, or Super? I want to say it's Hayes. Hayes. I think it's Hayes, yeah. 
what is the name of the book that Stevens uses? His atlas and map is his guide for his... What? Oh, I, Mrs. Jellybee or I, something. Yeah, Mrs. Something, something. I'll, I'll remember once you say the name. Well, yeah. it doesn't give us Mrs. Jellybee's. It says, The Majesty of England, The Wonder of England, The Wonder of Lutton, or The Majesty of Lutton. Oh. Wonder of England. I want to say it's The Wonder of England, too. Yeah. Are we comfortable going with that? Yeah. Yeah, these are strange questions. This is all from gradesaver.com. If I didn't say that, what we're saving it. teacher a, asks these questions? Uh, Jake's teacher apparently asks questions Carver. like this. But we would have read the book like a day ago. Yeah, exactly. Uh, why does Darlington want to fire the Jewish maids? He came under the influence of the wicked, whatchamacallits. Nazis? <laughs> I think might be the word you're looking for. <laughs> <laughs> there was some party or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they stole from him, because they ran away, because of his pro-German sympathies, or because they broke his antiques. They broke his, his antiques? Yes, clearly <laughs> they broke his antiques. No, it's because of his pro-German sympathies. Right? Yes, yes. What country is Mr. DuPont from? I'm not sure I remember who Mr. DuPont France. is. France. Yes. Is they were Mr. trying to sway him. Okay, he's the French guy. Also, his name is Dupont. Dupont? There you go. Sure. <laughs> he is a chemical company. Why does Darlington want Stevens to speak to Reginald Cardinal? Who? Reginald Cardinal. Oh, yeah, about the birds and the bees. Yep, yep. They educated yeah. him about the facts of life. Which is the funniest part Fair of the enough. book. That is yeah. funny. Actually, I don't think that's the funniest part of the book. I think the funniest part of the book is where he decides to walk really fast out of that room to avoid talking to Mrs. Kenton. Oh, yeah. What a moron. To educate him about the facts of life, to give him back his attache, to educate him on World War One politics, yep. to introduce him to his future wife. Yes. All of the above? <laughs> All of the above. All of the <laughs> above. Facts of life. Here's your future wife, and just so you know, this is an attache. Where is Mr. Lewis from? Italy, German, America, or France? Pretty sure he's the American who everybody ends up hating. The really gauche uh, yeah. American. Yeah. yeah. Americans are. Who ultimately turns on Lord Darlington at the 1923 convention? Mr. Faraday, Mr. DuPont, Mr. Taylor, or Mr. Lewis? Lewis. Yeah, if we're right about who Mr. Lewis was. Which we are. What term does Mr. Lewis <laughs> use to describe Darlington? Amateur, barbarian, dignified, or bore? Immature. I think that's right. I think Jake's right. Jake, Jake actually remembers this book quite well. For someone that doesn't remember this book quite well. Where is the Coach and Horses Inn located? Westcombe, Moscombe, Darlington, or Taunton? The what? No idea. The Coach and Horses Inn. These are the kinds of details I... No, I don't even... You could. I could have literally read this book yesterday and I wouldn't remember that. My brain simply doesn't Pick absorb those kinds of details. Because... I, I want to say it's Taunton. Let's just go with that. All right. Yeah. My answer is who cares? <laughs> The great British town of who cares? Uh, what is the name of the What is the name of the silver polish compan? This is a typo in gradesaver.com. What is the name of the silver polish so much for their compan? To detail. Yeah, <laughs> compan that Stevens extols. Is it Griffin and Co., Simons and Co., Daryl and Cole, or Dupont and Co.? Griffin. I want to say it's Griffin too. Do you object, Brandon? Yeah, no, I do not object. Mrs. Astor is friends with Darlington and influ influences him with what kind of sympathies? Pro-German, anti-Jewish. I'll give you the choices. Pro-Jewish. False. Pro-Catholic or anti-Catholic? No. Nope. False. Fascist. Must Probably. be that one. Pro-France. Must be fascist. Fascist. There we go. What is the name of the German ambassador who Lord Darlington has a key relationship with? Her Mosley, her Dupont, her Ribbentrop, or her, her Aster? Her Ribbentrop. Ribbentrop? Yep. Sir Oswald Mosley. Oh, man, I think we're almost done here. Sir Oswald Mosley leads which group? The Black Shirts, the Jewish Majority, the German Troops, or the Red Shirts? Oswald Mosley, huh? Now repeat the answers. <laughs> the black shirts, the Jewish majority, the German troops, or the red shirts? Black shirts. Who is John Silver? The pirate. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. <laughs> uh, Stephen's father's former employer? 
Stephen's former employer, Mrs. Kenton's former employer, Mr. Faraday's former employer. I ain't Mr. Faraday's former employer. No, I say it's uh, Dad's former employer. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Must be. Who be the foreign secretary of Britain during World War One, fellas? Lord Stevens, Lord Brown, Lord Darlington, Lord Halifax. Halifax. I want to say it's Halifax. All right. Yes. You think we got 100? percent I'm about to submit this. Pretty close, bad boy. The site is blocked due to content filtering. <laughs> Are you kidding me? <laughs> oh boy. I guess gradesaver.com is a little bit too risque. risque for old Clear Note Church where we're recording this. Well, people will never know. Oh, shoot. <laughs> Guys, you know you know why it was blocked? This what? is hilarious. This site was categorized in academic fraud. <laughs> <laughs> if you try to cheat at our church, <laughs> our, you our, will web, be cut. our web system will block you. <laughs> I'm gonna get this. I'm gonna get this taken care of. All right. You want me to just tell us, tell you the answers that we had? I guess you'll probably be able to remember them. For purposes of probably be able. You'll just zoom through. This happened to me the other day. How did I test. find the quiz? I it lost was. all the results to a 99 question. Oh no! I'm so sorry. Was it for your job or? We were trying to profile the ideal candidate for our company, and so we had to take a Myers Briggs. <clears throat> oh really? And so now I definitively know because we actually paid for it. I know exactly what. What personality type are you? I thought I was the architect, but this like gave me like I was firmly in. What's the one with the dancing poet lady? I don't know. Um, the mediator. I think I'm a mediator. Are you? But we're not personality wise exactly like exactly alike. Are you a mediator? Maybe I don't know. I'm a. I don't know. Are you an introvert? No. No, then we're not. Okay. I mean, I'm definitely not an introvert. Extrovert. You are an extrovert? Or no, 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 I'm no. Not. I'm an extrovert, but yeah. only very slightly. Yeah, I am a... Oh, while I'm doing this, I'm just going to point out the fact that there's a question that says who ultimately turns on Lauren Darlington at the 1923 convention. So you're going to go back and turn that other thing into 23? Yeah, which was, as I was going through it here, my my inclination. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I wanted. I am an INFP. So I, am I. Are you? Yeah. Really? And I'm an EF, ENFP. Yeah, INFP. You're, you're an ENFP and Brennan and I are INFP. INFP strong, Jake. That's right, man. NFP so, strong. Every, every time I had taken it before, I was like right on the cusp with the P and J. Mm-hmm. But when I actually took the real Myers-Briggs, like I was way over here with the P. Interesting. So. Okay. Ready? Set. <laughs> What's the verdict, man? 100%. 100%. We can all go home. Should we go on to quiz two? <laughs> we can't. This is such a uh, riveting, <laughs> riveting radio material. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I got some more questions about Ready Player One. <laughs> Sweet. Uh, I what love you think that about book. Ogden Morrow. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean remains of the day. Ogden Morrow, man, you're just making me mad. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, as we've established, it has been a couple of weeks. So what I've done is I've compiled some questions from the internet. Whoa. Courtesy of first, litlovers.com. All right. They've got six questions for us. The first question is, what does Stevens care most deeply about? Can you articulate a worldview for him, Jake? I'm just going to go with his key word here, which is dignity. Dignity. That's a good place to start. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's where we'll start. His whole life is centered around being a good butler and figuring out what makes a good butler and seeing his contribution to the world as being his contribution in the service of the great men who shape and form society. That's what butlers do. That's his place in the world. That's his station. And so how can he serve a good man in the great cause of humanity 
who's doing and moving and shaking, and how can he do that well? He's attached himself to a man who he may or may not be delusional about, but really it's about comporting himself with dignity at all times, at great personal sacrifice, or at great personal cost, I suppose I should say. And that means not being a human being (laughs) and not having, you know, it's hard to tell as you read this book, I think you were the one, Nathan, who said that he kind of strikes you as some dude with Asperger's, Mm -hmm. and it's hard to tell, is he a dude with Asperger's, and that's what makes him something of a pretty great butler, or is being a butler something that pushes him towards being a guy who kind of has Asperger's? Does it work both ways, one way or the other? I don't know what the answer is. I, I kind of feel like it works both ways. Well, I suppose we have to ask the question whether he is actually, obviously by the end of the novel, I would say Ishiguro's point of view and Stephen's point of view, perhaps insofar as he has any self-knowledge, is that he has sucked at life, he has failed, he has yeah. supported Lord Darlington in a way that is unhealthy, he has not gone after what he could have had with Miss Kenton, which was unhealthy. A- apart from the acknowledgement that his heart was broken, one of the most poignant parts of the novel is what we've already talked about, the closing scene. But there he is, shortly after the lights came on, he's looking around and seeing people of all ages, families, and and I'm going to start quoting, families with children, couples, young and elderly, walking arm in arm. There's a group of six or seven people gathered just a little way behind me who have aroused my curiosity a little. I naturally assumed at first that they were a group of friends out together for the evening, but as I listened to their exchanges, it became apparent they were strangers who had just happened upon one another here on this spot behind me. Evidently, they had all paused a moment for the lights coming on and then proceeded to fall into conversation with one another. As I watched them now, they are laughing together merrily. It is curious how people can build such warmth among themselves so swiftly. It is possible these particular persons are simply united by the anticipation of the evening ahead, but then I rather fancy it has more to do with this skill of bantering. (laughs) And... So here he is, you know, he's reflecting on all this stuff. He's on a pier, on a pier. And there's something about being on a pier (laughs) that really makes it more poignant, maybe for me, but the water there. There's a reason every stock photo that I have to look, every time I go through stock photos to assign one to an article for warhornmedia.com, there's like 4 billion pictures of women sitting on beaches looking out at sunsets or people, people, there's just an infinite plethora of pictures of people gazing pensively into the ocean. So here he is. He's on a pier. There's the ocean. And there are these families with children and these couples and these lovers and people young and old, hand in hand. And he's puzzling over. I think that these are strangers here, but they're getting along well and they're laughing. It must be this art of banter. This is after he's talked to the gentleman. You would expect he he would have some Martin. Sorry. No, I was just I was I was asking because I was trying to remember. Yes, he's just talked to the the gentleman's just left, and he's started crying in front of this guy. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And he watches these people. You would expect this to be like the Martin Dressler ending, where he has his revelation and it sticks with him. Right. (laughs) But instead, it doesn't. And so this just goes back to like um, this is the end of the Moscum chapter. Do we admire Mr. Lane any the less because we learn he is not in the habit of challenging Sir Leonard Gray before each speech in the House of Commons? Of course we do not. What is there undignified? What is there at all culpable in such an attitude? How can one possibly be held to blame in any, any sense because, say, the passage of time has shown that Lord, Lord Darlington's efforts were misguided, even foolish? And this is where then he starts talking about, he tries to justify himself. Right. Throughout the years I served him, it was he and he alone who weighed up evidence and judged it best to proceed in the way he did. Well, I simply confined myself quite properly to affairs within my own professional realm. 
And as far as I am concerned, I carried out my duties to the best of my abilities, indeed to a standard which many may consider first rate. It is hardly my fault if his lordship's life and work have turned out today to look at best a sad waste, and it is quite illogical that I should feel any regret or shame on my own account. Right. And that's the way that chapter ends. And here with the scene Jake was pointing to was supposed to be the moment where he kind of had the breakthrough. And instead all we get is a glimpse of what could have changed about him. Mm-hmm. And, but he goes back again to this. He's already, he's self-justifying himself here. And he seems to kind of go back to the self-justification because he takes comfort in that. Does Ishiguro find Stevens to be entirely culpable? I mean, does does is Ishiguro saying that Stevens wasted his life? Is that yeah, true? I think he, I think he is. What you're seeing is ultimately you're seeing a man He's not unsympathetic, but he is culpable. Yeah. And culpable how? Any normal human being, like he's so caught up in his either his Asperger's or his sense of what a dignified butler is that he can't mourn the death of his father. Mm-hmm. He can't, can't even acknowledge ag- mourn is one thing, but acknowledge it as it's happening is even right. He's got bigger things and more important things to be concerned about. Right. And the fact that his father died, he doesn't even like the way the issue girl paints it. He goes down and he's serving people and a couple people ask if he's okay. It's clear that he's his eyes are red or maybe he's crying or something, but it's only clear incidentally to you as he's relating it. Like, yeah. And then he says it's one of his prouder moments, mm-hmm. right? Like he held it together. Mm-hmm. He was unbought. He, he put his duty above any human being, any normal human being would have handled that differently and still have been able to maintain his dignity and been able to make sure things were taken care of. Any reasonable Lord would understand that my head butler's dad died upstairs in my house during this dinner or whatever it was mm-hmm. and would make allowances for that. I mean, my goodness, unless mm-hmm. he's unless he is a Nazi, like what? Which we don't, because I've seen some people write about the evils of Lord Darlington. I didn't think the novel was actually saying, maybe this is a side point from what you're saying, but I didn't think that Lord Darlington was actually portrayed as anything but maybe a buffoon at worst. Well, we don't know who the, he was, right? Because we only, we only get see him from pers- yeah. Stephen's perspective. But yeah. insofar as we know anything about Lord Darlington, we can't definitively S- say Stevens, he was a Nazi. Well, no. Well, I think we can say that he kind of wasn't. If Stevens is honest in saying that he regrets having fired the, the girl and sends so-and-so out to... Which there's no reason to think that Stevens isn't. No. Then, then you'd say, okay, he did come under the influence of some bad people. And, and he got it wrong. I mean, history, it's just one of those jokes of history. He he picked the wrong horse, historically speaking. But how could he have known? I mean... That the Nazis weren't going to win? The, the, well, no, just that the Nazis... Were as evil as they were. Okay, yeah. I mean, it's ridiculous. You actually know, because I have read books about this. I read one about the Amer- the American ambassador, actually. I read a book about the American ambassador who was in Germany while Hitler came to power and while Nazism swept the nation and as World War II began. And he just sent these dispatches back to America saying, guys, this guy's evil. He's a psychopath, whatever. It's bad. It's bad. And nobody believed him because... Well, he was, Hitler was Time, Time Magazine's Man of the Year. Yeah, it wasn't clear. I mean, Lord Darlington is not, well, insofar as what we know about Lord Darlington. The portrayal, the portrayal of Darlington as just being a good English gentleman, maybe being blind 
offended by the fact that, I don't know if this is Lewis or whoever it was, but you def- you defeat somebody in battle, you don't beat them down. Right. You have to be generous toward them and help them back up on their feet. Stevens portrays Dar- Darlington as being of such noble, old school sympathies that that's what really led him astray. And he has this German friend that he loves who commits suicide and it's sad for him and it makes sense that his sympathies would, would go that direction, I think. Yeah. I only say this because I've read things that have tried to paint the ultimate moral of the novel as being one of Stevens serving this Nazi monster and Stevens being that dumb. And I'm not sure. I don't know that that's true. I I don't think it's that Well, and I also don't think that he was a bad, I mean, you could also read the novel, Lord Darlington made Stevens the way that he is, required him to be that way. But I don't think that's (laughs) true either, I think. I think that's an inaccurate reading. I think one thing with Ishiguro is he's always, it's very ambiguous. Mm Mm-hmm. But I think that largely that's because he's dealing with these first-person narratives where the person is trying to justify themselves. Right. And what he does is he deals with people who have lived their whole lives. And, I mean, anybody with the slightest bit of self-awareness sees this in in themselves. They've lived their whole life trying to pretend they haven't done certain things that they've done. And then if you do that enough, you get to the point where you actually begin to believe it. And that's what he's brilliant at doing, is he knows this element of ourselves. The artist of the floating world is about this guy who, before the fall of the Japanese empire at the end of World War II, was this prominent artist who was into empire building. The book is post-bombing of Nagasaki, and it's just him dealing with the aftermath and him thinking certain things and him feeling certain things and whether or not they're true or not, but just dealing with the guilt of what he had done. But then trying to also at the same time pretend, like um, Stevens here, that there wasn't really anything to be ashamed about. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And so... One thing we can never know in this book is like, what was anybody's actual motivations? You have to kind of read between the lines. Yeah. And even with, so you have Lord Darlington. Yeah, there was that pretty girl who shows up and that's kind of an interesting twist towards the end of the novel is that you get, I think you get the whole convention before you have the girl show up, right? And so then you're like, yeah, okay, well that makes, that actually makes sense. She's the one who caused his downfall and how many guys haven't been. Right. It's the Eve syndrome. Right. That's believable. But then it's also believable that it was just something that Stevens made up again to excuse himself. So who is Darlington? That's not really the question the novel's asking. It's more like, right. what's Stevens? What, how does he, how is he culpable? That was the question you were asking. How is he also not culpable? Whatever it is. Well, and I think it's remarkable how little we actually know about Miss Kenton. I'll be interested to see how the movie solves this problem because I have no idea why she's throwing herself at this guy based yeah. on what she's we She's lonely about the novel. and she's older. Yeah, I um, guess so. He's dignified and he has some I mean, it authority be, to himself. Yeah. Well, I they're going to put Anthony Hopkins in as him. Yeah. What they're going to do is they're going to portray Stevens as a very emotionally deep man who nevertheless remains committed to duty. And that's going to be attractive in its own way. Like, here he is, and he is feeling all of the pain of his dad dying, and yet he has a job to do, and he feels duty-bound to do it. And so he's going to go and do his best at it, and that's heroic. And that's how Stevens thinks of himself. He tells that story about his dad driving the car with the two guys being jackasses in the back of it or whatever. And and it's just like the pinnacle of what a butler can do when he just gets out. That's how Stevens thinks of himself. That's not how we perceive Stevens as readers. But that is, I think, how how the movie's going to solve the problem in that sense is I don't know how Anthony Hopkins, I don't know how he avoids 
Well, the problem is Anthony Hopkins, I've been curious about this. It'll be interesting to talk about this next week. Anthony Hopkins brings such innate likability and dignity and intelligence. It's hard for him to imagine him being the boob that Stevens basically kind of seems like he is based on this novel. You you almost need a less authoritative, less likable actor to play the part, but we'll see. Well, but then to be a prominent butler in a prominent lord's house, you wouldn't be... <laughs> Sorry, I you would think be of a, a dignified. Word for that. You would be a dignified person. Yeah. There has to be some reality to that. Well, that's. I but guess. One, that's, oh, sorry. Go ahead. sorry. Well, I mean, one of the major themes of this novel is when people talk about the Nazi regime. You talk about the banality of evil. Mm-hmm. How just easy it is to mm-hmm. pretend that the evil's not there and to just live your life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One place this comes across clearly is with Miss Kenton. Her reaction after the Jew Jewish uh, maids were fired. Yeah, that's fantastic. She never quits. Yeah. Yeah. And she's just like, and she just continues not to quit. And he kind of makes fun of her for it because he's afraid she might actually do it. And he's trying to find a way to passive aggressively find out, are you actually going to quit? But she just doesn't do it. And she admits that what else was she going to do? And so one thing that this novel does kind of brilliantly deal with is just how our lives go on in the face of wickedness. Any in tune listener is going to think, well, yeah, I mean, this is America today. This is how Christians. Hashtag abortion. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's the easy analogy because it's the true analogy. Yeah, I think so. So, how many of us just live with it? How many times we drive by that place of bloodshed and we don't even think anything? Yeah. So, Mm -hmm. it's just, and he captures that perfectly here. You just live with it. And how many Lord Darlingtons have we known who have gotten something wrong about it? Older people that just didn't understand something. I mean, it's it's so big and so evil, it's hard to wrap your head around. And then guys like, I mean... It doesn't necessarily make you sympathetic to them, but it does help you realize how they got to where they are. Guys like Tim Keller, I mean, he, in a sense, is at Lord Darlington. Mm-hmm. He's made so many concessions, he doesn't know how to get out. And each concession made sense at the time. And he's such a soft man because, you know, he prizes kindness, whatever it is, that he's become who he is. You watch how the tangle just happens around these people. Mm-hmm. Like the it cloud from <laughs> something... <laughs> Bringing it back home. So, no. Oh, How boy. dare you begin to say something wicked? I know. It comes. It's not, I know. Slap me, Nathan. Yeah, that is not the novel. I'll slap myself. From. Yeah. <laughs> Take that. <laughs> it's from uh, The Wrinkle in um, <sighs> The Wrinkle in... Was, was Ishiguro... Did he think that there was anything to this Stevens guy? Like, was there any dignity? Had he... Was, was there any nobility in the fact that he'd given his life to Lord Darlington, or was it just all? Is this is this book a complete tragedy? It's. I don't think he wants to answer the question. I think he wants you to puzzle about it. Yeah. But on the one hand, it is an amazing thing that Stevens pulled off some of the bizarre things that he pulled off. Mm-hmm. The ways that he was able to live up to his own standard of dignity does make you wonder if he was really just that committed and self-possessed or if he had Asperger's. Right, yeah. Right? You end up asking those questions. You ask the question, like, in and of itself, like, there's a real sense in which he lived up to his ideals, and were those ideals then misplaced or wrong is a separate question. Yeah, I'm not quite sure how to answer it. Yeah, so I think Ishiguro's just sort of, in some ways, just presenting a kind of tension. Like, here's a guy who spent his whole life 
wanting his life to be meaningful and convincing himself that his life was meaningful and convincing himself of the part that he had to play and making sacrifices, big sacrifices along the way and having to shut himself down emotionally in order to make those sacrifices all because he wanted to live a meaningful life and now here he is and the rug's been pulled out from underneath him. You've got sort of this massive self seemingly self-sacrificial achievement in service of what right but then you're supposed to i think you're supposed to step back and say well how are we any any of us ever to really know how how are we supposed to figure and parse this all out that's right all we can do is do our best right and so what's our best look like i don't remember whether i said this quote last time or not but ishiguro i saw an interview with him where he said we're all english butlers I think that's what he meant is we all have this dilemma. Yes. Yeah. So two things here. One, I do think that Ishiguro has a deep sympathy with all of his characters, even Mm -hmm. his most flawed characters. So I think he does sympathize with Stevens, and I think he also sympathizes with Darlington. Mm -hmm. I think that's why he waits for the reveal with the woman, Mm -hmm. because he wants you to be kind of have the rug pulled out from under you and realize, oh, well, you thought Darlington was like an Indiana Jones Nazi who was just like manipulating things behind. You thought that's the way the novel was headed, but then you end up realizing he was just kind of an impotent puppet. Yeah, he's just an idiot. Right? Yep. And there's no more importance to him than Stevens gives to anything else. Mm -hmm. I do think Ishiguro has a deep sympathy for his characters, which I over and over again talk about how I think that novelists really need sympathy for their characters. Oh, man. And I mean, I think that's what makes Ishiguro really stand out. But like other authors, I mean... It's sad. It frustrates me because I see Ishiguro over and over again doing exactly what Jake is saying. He's revealing to us the reality that we make idols for ourselves and try to serve these idols so that they can have meaning and give meaning to our lives. Mm -hmm. That's the theme of Ishiguro's novels. Every single one of his novels is about that, how Mm -hmm. we build uh, these temples and we try to worship in these and have meaning for our lives that we never can really have. But then what's really frustrating is the fact that Ishiguro never really gets to the truth. Mm -hmm. You know, that is the real frustration that I have over and over again with him, is that he then generalizes this to be all of life. Right. Instead of realizing that you do have a real answer. And actually, to be honest, that's also what's frustrating with Lewis is because he would never just say that was the answer too. Mm -hmm. But whatever. That's an interesting comparison. I don't know what to say about it besides it's an interesting comparison. (laughs) And then we'll have Flannery O'Connor and boy, howdy, will she say that's the answer. Well, And she makes a lot of people mad when she says it too. Yep. Yep. Brain you might have to get your brains blown out to figure it out. But, but it's the answer. It's buddy. the answer. <laughs> you want to know the answer? I'll give you the answer. Yeah, just take you take you into the woods and we'll we'll talk about the answer there. Yeah, we'll talk more about that with O'Connor. But I do I was thinking over and over again about it's sad. Yeah. I wish Ishiguro, just like I wish Tolstoy, could find the answer. I mean, I think Austin had the answer. Yeah. She may be the only of the great authors we've read. I don't think, I, I mean, Ishiguro doesn't make it to that level, but he's he's not far. Yeah. Well, I do love his sympathy for his characters. It's just nice to read someone that obviously has sympathy for Stevens. It would be so easy to write a mean, like, you, I mean, almost you could imagine what Jane Austen would do with a character like Stevens. It wouldn't be pretty. It wouldn't mm-hmm. be, except that we then also realize i think people and we pointed this out in our pride and prejudice episodes give her an unfair rap because collins isn't as nasty as we remember him yeah i think that's true he has the garden he has that little home scene Mm -hmm. with his wife right yeah she had sympathy even for the nasty because collins is kind of a stevens yeah very much so 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 far as people without any knowledge well guys uh, lit lovers question number two we got six of these to get through (laughs) 
Consider the decisions Stevens makes during the time of his father's death, as well as the dismissal of the two Jewish servants. Where do Stevens' ethical responsibilities lie, given his time in history and place in society? I think we kind of answered that already. Yeah, I think we kind of did. Let's not try to tease that out anymore. If you want to know what his ethical responsibilities are regarding the two Jewish servants, it's a really complex question. What you want, I mean, what the question wants you to say is... Stevens should have quit that very moment. He should have quit. He should have stood up to Lord Darlington and said, no, sir, no way, no how. What Ishiguru does is is make you feel how difficult that would have been. Yeah. But look, anybody that's lived a decade or lived a minute in the real world knows that things are just more complicated than that. We've all worked jobs where we've had to do things that straddle the line. And, you know, I've never had to fire somebody because of their ethnicity. I'm not saying that's okay. It's not. But Mm. I mean, come on, let's let's be real. There's I don't even know how to talk about it without sounding like a monster. Well, the real, the real, all right, let's make a real comparison. If we're going to make a real comparison, you are a city cop. Something's going down at Planned Parenthood and your job is to protect the baby killers. Yeah. My brother is a city cop. I think I can say that. And he's had to make decisions like that. And it's not easy. Yeah. I worked a customer service job where we answered for different companies and uh, answered the phones for different companies. And some of the companies were wicked. Mm -hmm. And I I had to decide what the line was. Yeah. And I'm not trying to say that Stevens should have... It's cool that Stevens just... Right, we're not saying the world is gray. And there might be a time to quit your job. We're not saying there's not... But I'm not saying Stevens shouldn't have quit. I'm not saying he shouldn't have stood up to Lord Darlington and said, no, you're wrong. I'm saying that his position, his place, his sense of place, his sense of duty, there are a whole lot of things at war there. Before you think that, I know, I'll just self-righteously condemn this and man. blithely put on your social bli- justice yeah. worker, social justice warrior hat. and Because I have the perspective of history mm-hmm. here. Yeah. Take a step back and look at the compromises you yes. make in your own life and that you're faced with every day. Have some humility about you. Do you and drink maybe Starbucks? You should be Do you know wi- that Starbucks supports Planned Parenthood? Maybe you should be willing to condemn Stevens for how he acted, then turn around and point that finger at yourself, condemn yourself and repent of the places where you've been compromised. Yep. But don't do it blithely, as you, you said. Yeah. But do it with some real self-knowledge and self-awareness. At the end of the day, again, not to justify or let anybody off the hook. This is not a leveling statement. This is an amplifying statement. Nobody's hands are clean. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I do think that's Ishiguro's big point. If he's making a big point, it's that nobody's hands are clean. Yeah. One thing I like a lot about Ishiguro, I talked a little bit about the multicultural post-colonial theory, theory mm-hmm. when we did our context. But Ishiguro, he is a he is of Japanese heritage, living in Britain, mm. but he doesn't quite fit the post-colonial mode. Post-colonialism, just as a refresher, it looks at literature as the white colonialist versus the colonialized. Right. And everything is through that lens. Mm-hmm. And then things become very easy when you do that because then all it is is it's exactly what you're talking about, this SJW stuff, this social justice warrior bull that then makes life very black and white in a way that it isn't. And so they can look at this novel and they're like, well, yeah, you know, well, Ishiguro should have had the lines much clearer drawn for us. But Ishiguro, I think he just sort of, he knows them. He knows that they are going to say those things and then they're going to go off and all get drunk. Yeah. And that their whole life is about their pleasures and their belly. Mm-hmm. You know, at one point, 
point, they're all going to be about, oh man, you know, isn't it so sad? Post-colonialism. What's happening with cops versus blacks in America? Mm. Oh, this is so sad. Let's say some really horrible things on Facebook. You know, Trump, down with Trump. It's the Ides of March. Oh man, wouldn't it be funny if the Senate killed Trump? And then they're all going to go off together and they're going to get drunk. That's what they're all doing tonight. They're playing pool and they're singing their hipster songs and they're getting drunk. They're just feeding their bellies with their beer because they're all disgusting. And Ishiguro knows them. He has their number. Yep. And he wants nothing to do with them. And I love Ishiguro for that. So anyways, there you go. <laughs> to all my old comrades. <laughs> I sense a little aggression there. Yeah. yeah. I think you might have some specific people in oh, mind. I have here. a lot of specific people in mind. Whole English department. <laughs> I had a response in mind, but it completely left. What was it? Yes, I agree with you. <laughs> Well, here's the next question, since I can't remember what I was going to say. And then this question, I don't think we really need to answer this, but I do want to read it because, oh man, I'm going to read this exactly the way it's written. All right, Brandon? I'm so looking forward to it. This is from litlovers.com. These people, lit lovers, it's in the title. They love literature. They love lit. Or yeah, maybe they just love getting lit. Wasn't there a band, L-I-T? I think probably. Yep. Maybe that's all they mean is they really loved L-I-T. All right, once again, I'm going to read this exactly the way that it's written. Talk about is the social hierarchy to which Stevens is completely loyal, yet which exploits him thoroughly. I think we've already addressed that question. I just want to it's address that. It's not how, a comprehensible I want to address how meaningless this question is. Let's hear this again. Oh, I was just trying to read what between the lines. No, don't read between the lines. Just read the okay. line. Okay, well, let's read the answer line. the question as they wrote it. Talk about is the social hierarchy to which Stevens is completely loyal, yet which exploits him thoroughly. No question mark. Is the social hierarchy, that must be something Talk about. Talk is about. Is the social hierarchy which exploits Stevens thoroughly? No, but that's not what they said. They said, talk about, is the social hierarchy to which Stevens is completely loyal, yet which exploits him thoroughly? So the only way to make sense of that sentence <laughs> is if is the social hierarchy is like an institution. Right. Called is the social hierarchy. <laughs> so... Talk about this thing called Is the Social Hierarchy. Yeah. <laughs> Talk about the new play, Is the Social Hierarchy, Yeah. to which Stevens is completely loyal. Uh-huh. I'm going to skip that question. Um, this you. next question. And, of course, poor Miss Kenton. That's how the question begins. <laughs> what? Of course. <laughs> period. And, of course, poor Miss Kenton, period. Yeah. Would she ever have been happy with Stevens? Uh, good grief. Who knows? Who cares? Or could she have humanized him had she persisted and won him over? Shut up. Yeah, no, just be, shut up. This, no, this reminds didn't. me of the questions that the teacher didn't ask, but he never had the nerve to stop the students from talking this way. Oh, boo. I've <laughs> talked about my the great novel course I took. Mm -hmm. Tim Parrish was a fine teacher. He had a ponytail. He really liked books. <laughs> he and I were friends. But I took this, it was the long novel class with him mm -hmm. as an undergrad. And he just let the girls take over the class. Oh, man. And it became a book club. What do you want to bet? But like a bad book club. I know I got a rep on the internet for being a misogynist and all that. What do you want to bet a lady wrote this question? It, Probably. It, it has the feeling of a, yeah. like a, a, an, an undergrad girl. Yeah. And there are some fine book clubs. We have book clubs that are fans of us. My wife is a part of a book club where some of the people who go there actually like the book. In it. And some. <laughs> And so, yay for that book club. Yes. Hooray. Hello, Anna. Yay. Good, yay for your book club. Hi, Anna. 
But the we're talking about the stereotypical book club mm. that people think about to talk about is whether or not you think Vronsky was hot. Yeah. Well, the famous example from the from a Must book club been. we know of. Don't we have yeah, a book club? <laughs> you think so? Yeah. Yeah. He was a babe. Yeah. Who, Vronsky? Totally. Who? Oh yeah, he's a total babe. Was Vronsky hot? Oh yeah. He must have been. Well, he got together with Anna. Yeah, she was no. Anna must have been hot. She was yeah. no um, yeah. old hag. Whoa. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I can't do that. Uh, black dress. Can you guys? Do, can you guys do a wolf whistle? Can you, Brandon? No. How? There we go. Um, my eyes bulging out of my head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Your tongue flapped down like an unrolling thing or mabob. All the way to the floor. Yeah. Um, and of course, poor Miss Kenton. Period. Uh huh. Would she have ever been happy with Stevens, or could she have humanized him had she per- no? Shut she up. Didn't. Ishiguro does not care, and Ishiguro hates the fact that that question was asked about. This is book. a very contained novel. It is about Stevens. Yeah. Miss Kenton is. We it's don't, certainly not we, about what ifs. And it's not about. We don't even know. We really don't know about who Miss Kenton, Kenton is. Yes. She seems like a nice, vivacious lady that was yeah. interested in Stevens, maybe from. What and we then has know. the ability to be happy with her new husband. Yeah. Ishiguro seems like a pretty mature guy. He's, I, as far as I can tell, in a fairly healthy relationship. Mm-hmm. So that comes through in his novel. He has some self-awareness. That's good. This is, I'm not done with this question, by the way. No, there's, there's more. Um, or no. could she have humanized him? Oh, this is the next part of the question. Oh, dot, dot, dot. And what about the fact that she never left when she was forced to dismiss the two Jewish maids? Is she as culpable as Stevens in the matter? What would most of us do in our place? <laughs> Most of us would do what Miss Kenton did. Exactly what Mrs. Kenton. Oh, uh, I would Kenton not have did. done what I, she did, teacher. <laughs> I would have gone to Lord Darlington and I would have told him what's what. F. <laughs> I'm giving you an F. Fail. <laughs> so I'm the teacher. Failure of self knowledge. Failure. Yeah. This this class is self knowledge. Here and you she just... is. She's a single woman with nowhere to go, no family, a job that no, she's good at, where a job she's that she's loved. good at, a place where she is loved and well paid, and she's got no other options. Like, where is she going to go? She doesn't have options. And so her principles tell her that she should leave. Reality tells her that if you try to do that, you're going to end up on the (laughs) streets. And so, you know, maybe it was a failure of courage. Maybe it was a failure of faith and a a failure to trust in God to make the right decision and, and trust that God will care for you and provide for you. But how many people can say that they would have had that kind of faith in her position? Very few. Very, would be the very, to your very few question. people would. And that's again not to say that that was the right decision. No, just to say that it's an understandable one, and to pretend like it's not, to pretend like she's some kind of monster that is inferior to you morally, is to not understand yourself at all. Yes. Yeah. But that's what. Every 99%, is what is it, the 99%? You mean the, the Wall the Street movement. Yeah. The, what was that The 1%. Thing? The 1%, the Wall uh, What the, was that? The, uh, what is it? Something Wall Street. Uh, <laughs> Occupy. Occupy. Occupy Wall yeah. Street. What every Occupy Wall Streeter wants to believe they are some hero who gets it in a way that Stevens and, but you're just as stupid as they are. Well, there's one thing, there's a cliche I hate, and I can't think of an example off the top of my head, but you're watching a movie and it's set in the 18th century and the heroine of the movie is like, we as women must be emancipated. It's the cliche of the character, or here's an example, in The Patriot, the that dumb Mel Gibson movie, The Patriot. He doesn't own slaves. Everyone around him owns right, slaves. Right. But he's like, they work the land because they want to, because I'm such a great boss, but I sure do pay him because I'm not... It's like, I hate historical fiction where 
the character, the protagonist is asked to be as woke as we are now. To have perfect, perfect hindsight of the type that they would never have in real life. But the problem is, yeah. We're never that woke, though. We think no. we're woke, but we're not. You think and you're abortion woke? Abortion and- is the, oh, is the perfect example. Yeah. I would never have owned slaves. I would never have. You live in a society whatever, that whatever. slaughters thousands. We kill all of our children of babies, yeah. and we pretend like it's nothing. And if I say that, you're going to be up in arms, saying that's no comparison. That's not. You don't even know the science. Blah 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 yeah. blah 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 blah. Perfect analogy. If I was at the in Germany, Nazi Germany, in the Holocaust, I would have blah 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 blah. No, you wouldn't. They, have. No, they kill the babies. That's one of the you things. Would have gone I, right along with it. I, I have never cared for Rafe Fine's character in Schindler's List because he's portrayed as this psychopath, and I think it's completely <laughs> the wrong for it being the quintessential one movie about the Holocaust that everyone watches. I think it's an irresponsible character because what you want in your Nazi character is somebody that's just like Jake, that's somebody that's just like Brandon, somebody that's just like Nathan, somebody that's just doing their job, just getting Which, by and ends up doing monstrous <laughs> things like we all do yeah. because that's what's <laughs> what we learn to live with. You don't want a psychopath. You do not have to be a psychopath to be a Nazi. Yeah, which for all its problems is why Man in the High Castle does is, is okay. I've not seen Man in not the High Castle. I've not seen it either. The, I forget the actor's name, but one of the main characters who's one of the lead Nazis in it is kind of that kind of character. Yeah. He's a little bit of an egomaniac, but there are some really interesting things that happens. Well, we're not talking Schindler's List, and I'll just say Schindler's List, great movie. Ray Fiennes, great actor. love him and everything. And you had to have a villain. Yeah, I, mean, I don't know. He was know. a great villain. Yeah, he was, and I don't know what whether I need to say that Schindler's List was responsible to portray like their character, but it's just kind of a lame fact of movie history. That, yeah. well, well, we have like one... <laughs> movie that everyone thinks of as being the holocaust movie and the nazi in it is a psychopath and it's unfortunate he should have been it would be better i think <laughs> whether it was a bad decision or not i think it's unfortunate that that's the it's way it's unfortunate that out. that's the way it's portrayed yeah whether or not it takes away from the fact that he was a really amazingly scary he was an villain. effectively scary horrifying yeah. villain from what I've, i haven't seen that movie for years <laughs> but, but yeah for, uh, to my point to your point yeah. Yeah, so Ishiguro, he sees that. He sees that we all live in this fog Mm -hmm. and that you'll have these moments of insight. Novels actually give us these moments of insight. It's one of the benefits of fiction, insight into yourself, insight into others, relationships with others. Which is why it's so lame when historical fiction allows us to pretend like we would have been the one person that didn't own slaves, the one person, Nazi Germany, the one person that would have been above it all, that would have been woke, that would have been modern, that would have been, it's just a lie. And that's what's great about this novel. Any novel that tries to tell you that about yourself is lying to you. And any political movement that tries to tell you that about yourself is lying to you too. I mean, so that's one reason I don't have a whole lot of patience. Well, just like Occupy Wall Street, libertarians always seem to think that they have all the answers. Mm -hmm. They always seem to think that they're like Superman. Mm -hmm. It's like, just shut up. Well, one day we're going to have to do, I don't want to do this, but maybe one day we should do some Ayn Rand because if people thought we were hard on Wrinkle in Time, man. If you want to see me really get mad, I was actually like flipping my lid when I, I had to read that novel for some reason, and I the remember... The Fountainhead or Atlas Rudd? The Fountainhead. Yeah. I remember the angriest I've ever been in my life was sitting in my car, so reading that book, and just absolutely hating Ayn Rand. We ought to, I don't know, if we just wanted, if people like pure hate booking, like... If they really like Brandon... If they like angry Brandon... <laughs> then we should read some Ayn Rand. If you thought you the, will... the moon ripping through the clouds was bad... <laughs> 
Just that was pretty bad. <laughs> we should talk about the fountain head, or maybe we shouldn't. Hey, this next question: the novel is famous for its unreliable narrator, meaning that Stevens, who ah, tells yes, the story, explain it, please. Yeah, thank you. Well, guys, it's lit lovers. I don't know what this website. Maybe it's for like four-year-olds. The novel is famous for its unreliable narrator, meaning that Stevens, who tells this story, colors a great deal, a great deal in his telling. What? He colors. He colors. I, I don't know. He blushes. Coloring. He blushes. Maybe he he's green, just he coloring. <laughs> this is actually. No, a, he pulls out a coloring book. Yeah. And, oh, he colors. <laughs> I don't colors, know. Yes. I'm just reading him like I said him. Like I see him. True. He, he seems, is an unreliable narrator. He and seems, that's wait, the there's whole more to this question. Yeah. He seems blind to much that goes on around him, Jake. True. Events that we, the readers, see and judge differently than Stephen seems to. You've correctly grasped what Ishiguro was attempting to do. <laughs> Give some examples of Steve's... The whole book. <laughs> it literally <laughs> says Steve's. <laughs> Give some example of Steve's <laughs> inability to see things as readers see them. Why are we using this thing? I don't know, because I didn't have time to write questions. <laughs> what it, blind Steve... Okay, we're going to skip this question. Next no, no, question. No, 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 wait. Give some examples of what? Well, I mean, some examples. We talked about them last time, but there are particular points in the books where he says, well, maybe I'm misremembering that, right? I remember we're talking about Steve <laughs> Here. Give some example of Steve's I mean, inability to see things as readers see them. I don't want to open my book, but there are moments I remember where he says, well, it has to do with when she's talking to him about his father. Mm-hmm. And then he's like, well, maybe that didn't happen at that point. Maybe it actually happened at this other point. I love that. Right? I love that. Yeah. So there, there are just these little slips in memory that are really mm-hmm. interesting because I think that all I really think is doing for Ishiguro is helping you realize, wow, this. so we're not really looking at the facts of a story that happened the way that we usually see like an omniscient narrative. There's something else going on. And what else is going on is obviously us getting to the point where Stevens gets, where mm-hmm. we see his revelation. Yeah. And that's the point of the novel is to get us there. And so probably the most accurate portrayals we get is anything that's happening. It's like the whole stuff with Carlisle. Yeah. And the people in the inn. That's probably very true because it just happened. Right. But anything else that's in the past where he's trying to... The distant past, yeah. yeah. But even then in the inn, you get the sense that he's kind of, you know, he's like, well, I don't quite know, you know, they all seemed very to be taken by me and to laughing at my jokes and stuff. So you get the sense even then that he has the tendency to lie to himself. Yeah, well, he, paint things in a different light. He just doesn't know himself at all. Yeah, I mean, and you often wonder this about, I don't know if you guys wonder this about yourself, but you often wonder when something happens, did you see it the way other people see it? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. when you do something, do people see you the same way that you think you seemed? I know that I judge myself with 100% accuracy yeah. and that everyone sees me the exact way that well, I yeah, see myself. Of course you do, Nathan. That's why I'm your humble and obedient host. Yeah. You are the rare beast. Yes, indeed. <laughs> the unicorn. <laughs> the, the, the rainbow unicorn, in the fact. The rainbow unicorn. Who sees himself with 100% accurately. And, and now I'd like to ask the sixth question. You might also tackle the ending. <laughs> yes, <Okay>. you might. <laughs> we might. Set it up in, uh, in a row there. Yeah, and I might tackle it. <laughs> what happens to Stevens after he leaves Miss Kenton? What does he come to understand? What insights has he gained? Will he change? Indeed, is he capable of change? All right, okay, this is not a bad question. It's dumbly worded, but has Stevens, in fact, gained any sort of self-knowledge by the end of the novel? Is he going to change? Is, or is this novel just a straight-up tragedy about a dude that sucks at life and never really realized it? So, I mean, I don't know that it's a great question. I mean, here's my take. <laughs> okay. Like, Your take is that it's a terrible question. All right. Well, 
Okay, so Stevens does, in fact, realize some things about himself. And then, but he doesn't know what to do with any of it except figure out how to become a better butler. And so, I mean, that's his life. He doesn't, he's out of options. Miss Kitten's gone. Like, what's he going to do? Like, he's handicapped himself one way or another. Or he, Too late. It's just too late. So what's he going to do with the rest of his life except just try to be the best butler he can for the next guy in line and, until he dies like his dad did? Like, what? whether or not he actually thinks that thought explicitly or just sort of suppresses some of the revelations and... Either way, the conclusion's the same. Like, what can I do at this point in my life? Yeah. Well, it strikes me. I don't know if we've talked about this. I like a bold. I don't. I don't. We haven't talked a lot about symbolism in the bookening. Maybe we have. I don't know. But I like a bold symbol in a novel when when someone can really pull it off. And I love the little chunk where I think it's Miss Kenton and Stevens look out the window and his dad has messed something up. His dad dropped a tray and he's just retracing the steps. The steps. Trying yeah. to figure out what went wrong, trying to figure out the steady way on the steps, and that's it's a symbol. I'm I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that's a symbol for Stevens, right? He he's retracing his steps, trying to figure out where he went wrong, why he dropped the tray of life, mm-hmm. yeah, or, or that he did, and trying to assure himself that he actually can do it. And yeah, we've yeah. talked some about symbolism. Yeah, we had the race in Anacrena. Yeah, that was probably our, f- maybe our best. The theater symbol. in. The little play in Mansfield yeah, Park. Park mm-hmm. yeah. Yes, so, but have, yeah. yeah, I mean, in the right hands, these little symbols, they don't become more than they are. Right. It doesn't draw attention to itself. It's not like a big... But it's there if you're really reading and you know literary motifs mm-hmm. and what the different tools that authors have to play with. You see these sorts of things and you're like, okay, this is important. This is interesting. Or good writers are going to use these things. Mm-hmm. And so they're scattered throughout. And yeah, you're right. We don't really point... That's not something we do a lot. No. Maybe we should start doing that more, Nathan. No, it just I think it depends on the book maybe. But, <laughs> but I think... I mean, I, but I think that Ishiguro in particular does this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And so you have the walk, you have the lights going off at the end. Mm-hmm. That's another. I mean, it definitely is. Yeah. That's symbolic. The lights go on. They go on. That's right. Right. They're going on. I was misremembering. Just right. like Stevens, which I tend to do. Yeah. I'm a misrememberer. Yeah. <laughs> One thing we didn't misremember: C.S. Lewis. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Tell us that that was misremembered. Okay. Honestly, so somebody left a little note somewhere that said we had inaccurately described or remembered C.S. Lewis's thoughts about the sodomy that happened in the boys' school that he was at. What he says about it, because I looked it up the other day, it's just it's He disgusting. said it bore the traces of divinity. Yeah. That's what he said. Which really uh, kind of soured me even more on C.S. Lewis. I just think if I'm going to still, I think maybe Brandon said this. He said, if I'm going to like Lewis, I just need to stop digging because- Yeah, I said I need to be, be like Bertram. Yeah. Like Lord, yeah, not not what is what is the Bertram's line uh, or Sir uh, Thomas's the not run the risk of investigation. Run the risk of investigation, yeah. Oh boy, <laughs> because boy, howdy! It seems like the more I run the risk of investigation, just the more the de- you know the deeper down that rabbit hole I go, the more like just weird stuff. Here's a direct quote: "Pederasty, however great and evil in itself, was in that time and place the only foothold or cranny left for certain good things. A perversion was the only chink." left through which something spontaneous and uncalculating could creep in. Plato was right after all. No, er- Eros turned upside down, blackened, distorted, and filthy, still bore the traces of divinity. <laughs> yeah, Plato, that's, I mean, so what? Don't hold Plato up as some, good grief, C.S. Lewis, you should have been smarter than that. The whole, cl- that's so if it, if we say that C.S. Lewis is weird. It's because we're doing him a favor and not yeah. outing him for the, yeah. 
It's like the it man. It's creeping into all his works. <laughs> oh man. I hope I can save Narnia from it. It's disgusting though. It is disgusting. Absolutely disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> well, guys, is there anything else we need to talk about about this novel? This was the kind of novel for me. I'm gonna give it. I'll I'll give it the BSOA. Booking sealed approval. I think people should read it. It tended a little bit more towards the nutritional than towards the tasty. I will mm-hmm. say yeah. this is if, if it was especially we got got a little whiplash having come off of remains of the or what, what's that thing called? I keep confusing the two titles because they both Ready Player One. Yeah, Revenge of the Nerds is um, <laughs> having just, having just read Revenge of the Nerds, <laughs> which is has no nutrition and some taste. It was little bit whiplash to suddenly get more nutrition, a little bit less well, taste. I mean, we 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 went from Mansfield Park to Ready Player One to Remains yeah. of the Day. That it was, was like, like super whiplash. Whoa, whoa, I was whoa. feeling whiplash going from Mansfield Park to yeah, Ready Player like One. But then yeah, country. coming from Ready Player One back into Britlet, it was that was rough. Yeah. But this is the kind of novel that really rewards thinking about talking about i don't know i just it was one of those novels where as i was reading it i wasn't as appreciative of it as i was and talking about it with you guys and thinking about (laughs) it i'm like this is actually a really powerful novel i mean the ending is powerful it Mm -hmm. felt kind of minor to me as i was reading it i'm just giving my honest take on this but i've come to like it more as i've thought about it and i would encourage people i don't know i think people should think about things it's good to think about things brandon don't you think like it's very good to think about sometimes you have one point of view and then you think about it and something grows in your estimation like remains of the day or something goes down in your estimation like c.s lewis yeah yeah, I really like this novel. The scene where he's talking to the guy at the end, it's and he's he's crying. It's just like, oh, this is sad. This was a a a little tragedy, an affecting one. So, Brandon, your thoughts? Oh, I think everybody knows. I give this the BSOA for similar reasons that you give it the BSOA. Well written, deeply sympathetic. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have the right worldview at the end, but I'll forgive him that. So, I mean, people, it may, I think it's the whiplash effect, like you were saying. I, people know that I lost the trial, mm-hmm. unfortunately. Yeah. I demand a, re, a retrial. <laughs> a retrial. <laughs> Maybe Brady Player 2 is coming out a year or two, oh, buddy. Oh, boy. Um, anyways, no, I'll never beat Jake. <laughs> if you think there's any way that we're getting away without doing Ready Player 2, then you're, I've got right. some Landon, some Marshy. Bridge, like, what's the saying? I've got know. some something I can sell you. Some property. Yeah. And, uh, uh, so, I mean, yeah, I, yeah, whatever. Um, Sustained. I do think there was a little bit of that effect because I felt like I was coming into a lush, beautiful pasture. <laughs> I read Remains of the Day, and then as people have kind of picked up on these episodes, I kind of went haywire, and I think I've read everything that Ishiguro has written now except for his short collection of stories, Nocturne. So you really love Ishiguro, and you yeah, I fell in love with him high-heartedly and or high-heartedly, <laughs> yeah, wholeheartedly. Where would you place him among modern? Uh, authors, Brandon. He's right up there. Right up He's there. right up there with Cormac McCarthy. Is he above Cormac McCarthy? Below? I think because he doesn't talk about scalping and he doesn't have the absolute nihilism that Cormac McCarthy sometimes does. I hate to say this, Nathan, but I think he might be a little bit above McCarthy. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. So he's like top of the top, one of the your best favorite. living novelists. As far as I think he's the best writer. living novelist. He might be is. the best living novelist. Yeah. Dude, I, I think, think Dennis Johnson is worse than Cormac McCarthy. Well, he's also, he's not, also not, dead. Not he's also living. dead. Now, you know who's alive is Ernest Klein. It'll be interesting. We'll get to make this decision. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I did not read Remains of the Day in one setting. What was I saying? Um, <laughs> I greatest don't living know novelist. Why you said that? Yeah. 
<laughs> I also did not read Remains of the Day in I one don't sitting. Know why and I didn't read Anna Karenina in one setting. <laughs> Let's name all the books we didn't read in one setting. Go. <laughs> um, all I was going to say is it'll be interesting to revisit McCarthy. That's all. Yeah. I don't know. I think that it'll be fun to compare them to one another. I think as far as just a pure stylist goes, McCarthy beats Ishiguro. Yeah. Well, Ishiguro is also just not swinging for the fences like yeah. McCarthy does, but he's he's very beautiful and simple in his way. But I do think there is some real wickedness to some of McCarthy's thinking. Well, we'll see. Well, that'll, that'll be, that's a, a horse for another you don't agree. color or whatever. I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll talk yeah. about it when the episodes come. All right. Yes, I think you're probably right. But uh, Jake, BSOA? I give it the seal of approval. I am not anywhere close to as taken with Ishiguro as Brandon. I'm glad I read this. I think this is a book worth reading. You will not be reading nine more Ishiguro novels. I'm not, or I'm not like Brandon charged up to go read the next Ishiguro novel. Fair enough. I wouldn't be sad to. I found a way to enjoy it on that le- on a fun level, but it was only after I realized about halfway through that it was funny. And I did find the novel to be quite funny. I mean, there are parts where, especially the scene that always comes back to me is where he decides for some ridiculous reason because Miss Kenton is like outside the door and he doesn't want to talk to her that he just has to like power past her. <laughs> he thinks about like climbing out the window. And, <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, this guy's just ridiculous. Um, Stevens is ridiculous and it's really sad, but it's also, there's a, there's a nice little black streak of humor about it too. So, um, on that level, I think I enjoyed it. It's sympathetic. He doesn't ever lose sympathy for Stevens, but also you can stand outside and just be like, oh man, this guy's ridiculous. So there you go. We basically agree, but it's not like a, a wholehearted agreement either. Yeah. We didn't put the novel on trial though. Man, what, no, if, we didn't. what if we'd put this one on trial? I feel like Ready Player One. If we put it on trial, it comes new, through uh, clean. It'd be hard to argue against it in any way. I think there would be. What were you saying, Brandon? I have no clue. I actually don't know what I was saying. <laughs> Something about Ready Player One. Uh, who cares? The book ending today was written and produced by Nathan Alverson. It was performed by Nathan, Jake, and Brandon. Go to patreon.com forward slash the what? Booking. And give us what? Money. And we will what? Love you. Give you <laughs> behind the scenes content. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. a video every week, baby. That I'm sure all of our patrons actually watch. Just watch and love uh, multiple like times. Them. It's fun, you know. Hey, well, you know, you do get to <laughs> see fun things like, you know, Brandon's stacks of notes and books that he brings. Brandon's like, Indian edition of uh, Jane Austen. Yeah, that, that was one fun. time. Um, Sometimes you get to hear our thoughts early. Like, we all talked about Ready Player One before we did the episodes, and we were like, ah, Ready Player One. I don't know what we yeah, said. You get to hear sort of like, the it's it's something of a pre-show. You also get to sometimes maybe hear some slightly uncensored things that only behind the paywall people. <laughs> some what we really, really, really think. Right. How, what exactly we thought should have happened to Charles Wallace. You can certainly find oh, that wow. out. <laughs> anyway, we'll be back next week for an Anthony Hopkins movie. We're going to watch a lot of Anthony Hopkins this week, eh? We got, or this year, we got Shadowlands. We did this. Might as well just throw Silence of the Lambs in there. Why aren't we reading that? Why not? I don't know. That's a dumb ending. <laughs>
Buffalo is about ready to destroy. It just destroyed Arizona. It's a big upset. It's a bracket buster for me. Those bracket busters. Those bracket busters. Huh. Well, all you can do is look at what remains of the bracket. Oh, my. My. Remains of the bracket. (laughs) You can come to terms with that, right? Looking back on your life, it won't seem so bad (laughs) in the grand scheme of things. (laughs) You're still a dignified host. (laughs) I don't think so. (laughs) The lights are turning on and I'm sobbing. (laughs) 